I didn't decide I'm passionate about sales. It happened over a period of years. It right. happened because I got good at it. You don't, you don't go and find your passion. You bring your passion with you when you go and do something else, and eventually you learn to love what you do. That won't always happen, but it happens more often than people would like to uh, think. And the, the problem is a lot of these millennial kids especially, and I am one of them, so I'm not just hating millennials, a lot of them, us, we will go somewhere and go, I know I don't like this because it's day three and it sucks, so I'm just going to decide that this is not where, I'm, where I am where deserve to be, and I'm going to do my side hustle because I watch YouTubers, and I'm decided I want to do that or be on Instagram or whatever. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Jordan Harbinger. Jordan often referred to as the Larry King of podcasting, is a Wall Street lawyer turned interview talk show host and a communications and social dynamics expert. He has hosted a top 50 iTunes podcast for over 12 years, and his most recent show, The Jordan Harbinger Show, was awarded Apple's Best of 2018. It is one of the most popular podcasts in the world. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast for a special opportunity from Jordan. All right, welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. I'm really excited to share a very, very interesting guest with you today. Some of you are probably going to know him, Jordan Harbinger. Jordan, you have a very interesting life. I, I read your bio, watched a, an interview with you that was on your website with, I believe it's Ty Bollinger. I don't know who that is. So it couldn't have been him. Never interviewed that guy. Okay, it was it was someone interviewing you. Uh, it was a good interview. Maybe, I forgot the guy's name, but it was a very good interview. I, I was really impressed, and he did a, a great job for me to understand and learn about you better. And and you know you've you you uh, you've got quite an interesting history. I I love the parts where you talk about kind of your development and your. Uh, work as a lawyer in Wall Street, and, and then your kind of podcasting career and how that came and some of the career shifts. So what I thought would be fun for you to do, since a lot of my guests might be new to you, is if you could just give us sort of a an overview of the thrill ride of your life uh, and how you became the successful man that you are and, and, and are here with us today. Ooh, that's a huge, no, that's like a non-question, right? It's like, hey, Jordan, <laughs> take it away. Let me see. Um, where to begin? You know, I when I was a kid, I was interested in, I, I, yeah, oh, geez, where do I even begin? Yeah, when I was a kid, you know, I was more interested in eavesdropping on phone conversations and hacking things, either on the computer or on the phone, than I was in school. So I got in trouble a lot. And I got really interested in people because I was listening in on phone conversations because I'd figured out how to tap local phones and, and clone cellular phones and listen to conversations. So I kind of grew up a little bit early or quickly, I guess you could say, because I heard what adults talk like when there are no kids in the room. And that was really an eye opener for me. You know, that was really interesting for me. Sounds like you tore a page out of Steve Jobs's phone book. Uh, uh, phone, yeah, phone book. I, didn't Steve Jobs used to, he invented some kind of a device he could plug into pay phones and call anywhere in the world when he was about 18 years old. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So he created that red box 
and I created the digital version of that because he was using a micro cassette recorder. I went to Hallmark, bought one of those recorder cards, those recordable cards that you can record a message on, ripped the guts out. That was a digitally perfect reproduction. And so that wasn't, didn't require you to buy a tape recorder, didn't require you to have mini cassettes. And when it was cold or hot outside, it didn't change the frequency because tapes change with heat and cold. Right. Digital reproductions on a semiconductor, they don't. So I so I guess, well, I improved on that invention, really. I mean. <laughs> That's very good. That's yeah. a promising future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. Cool. So, yeah, you know, I know it's a big question. I just thought it'd be neat to kind of hear some of the developmental steps, you know, like like you're starting off with, you're, you're showing us what your mind was like, which is inquisitive, the kind of kid like me that gets in trouble in school a lot, <laughs> doesn't, and finds he has, he does better on his own. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it was funny, because I remember a lot of teachers being like, you know, this, your son is not behaving in class, he's not paying attention in class. And my mom was like, well, he's pretty smart. And, you know, maybe he's a little bored. And the teachers, of course, were like, rolling their eyes because they're like, he's not bored. He's a knucklehead who doesn't pay attention in class. But then she would go to like my science class or my other courses at, where I was actually engaged because the teacher was good. Even right. math, even math, which I didn't like, I was killing it. And then my math teacher would say something like, oh, he needs to be in the gifted program. I'm going to start a gifted program. Will your son be in the gifted program? And my mom would go, can you please tell the dumbass French teacher that that's that you want him in the gifted program. And she's like, oh, well, you know, not every subject's for every kid. But I just remember the whole sit down and read this passage and then recite the things that you learned from the passage. That just didn't work for me. Yes. You know, I was sitting there and my dad would go read the Wall Street Journal. And I'd read the Wall Street Journal and I'd be like, this is far more interesting than this kind of dumbed down social studies BS that we had you know, that we were learning like, oh, build a pyramid out of Legos. This is Egypt. And I'm just thinking like, well, uh, okay, I guess I can do that. I mean, I just felt like all of our assignments were kind of for babies in school. And so I wasn't engaged. I wasn't interested. And I started getting in trouble. But then certain teachers realized that they realized what I was doing. You know, I, I got in some deep trouble in middle school because I ordered pizza for the whole school using um, what looked like a stolen credit card number. And it wasn't a stolen credit card number. It was a number I made up and I got personal information from somebody, but it was just random information. I said, uh -huh. oh, here's a fake name. And I called a pizza place and I knew that it would work because I remember asking the pizza place how they knew that a credit card was good. And they said, oh, well, we write it down. And then every Friday we call the company, the merchant provider you know, they didn't have a way to swipe the card and then the thing dials in and then checks right. the card. They just, every Friday, somebody in the back office called, I don't know, a 1-800 number and said, I have the following 887 credit card numbers to read aloud and reconcile. Or they would take them to the bank, I guess, in some other way. There was some way that they did it manually. And so, of course, if I order pizza on Monday, by, by Friday, I'm long gone. And they think, I said, oh, how do you catch those people? And she goes, oh, well, we would just call you and you would come in and pay or you'd give us another card. I'm like, <laughs> what happens if the card's fake, you knuckleheads? So, of course, I just made up the card number and they called the cops. They couldn't figure out what had happened. Then the cops called the FBI because the fake name that I had given them turned out to be a real person in Florida. But, I mean, the name was probably like Jane Smith. I mean, give me a break, right? So the FBI comes to my middle school and is like, all right, 
who did this? Let's inv- let's interrogate all the other kids. And then my friend, the only person I told was my friend, and he's an idiot. Um, we're not even, of course, we're not friends anymore. I mean, it's been 20 years, but like, or 30 years. But like, the he was an idiot. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. And he was saying, oh, Jordan did this. He's so smart. Jordan did this. He's so smart. And I was like, bro, you weren't, you were stood next to me. Why are you the one who's getting me in trouble, you moron? Yes. So the, the, finally, the, the police, they have no proof. The FBI has no evidence. And the FBI d- guy just goes, look, man, I don't want to deal with this. This is really dumb. I think you're going to get in trouble. You're probably going to get expelled. If you admit to me that you did this, I will tell them that that I will make a deal with you and you won't get expelled from school. And I was like, you got to promise. And he's like, look, I I promise. And he did. He kept his promise. The school resource officer, which is like the the cop that works in high schools, agreed to the deal. And he went, look, this is stupid. You don't need to be expelled for this. You need a slap on the wrist. You're going to get some community service, but we don't want to investigate it. Because the FBI is going to, if they waste resources on this and embarrass everyone, you're in deep trouble, man. So I came clean and the FBI guy was like, we just want to know how you did this because this is kind of advanced crime for a sixth grader. Yeah. And so I said, yeah, well, here's how we do it and all this stuff. And I explained everything and my parents were flabbergasted and the FBI guy was more curious. Did I learn this like from my dad or my mom? You know, what's going on? And my parents are good people. So it quickly became, you know, he asked them a few questions about things and they had no clue what he was talking about. And it quickly became obvious that I was a little bit ahead of my time because I said, okay, another thing I'm doing is I go through dumpsters at the cell phone store and I find parts and I put the phone together and then I fix the phone and then I plug the numbers that I find on the pieces of paper in the dumpster into my phone and I can use the phone. And the guy was like, wait a minute. You're going through the dumpster repairing a cell phone, which, by the way, this is like 1996. It's not, this is not a task that some layman can do. This is like, you need a soldering iron. You need to know what you're doing. So I'm repairing broken phones, like putting a new screen in or whatever, or new buttons. And these are kind of junk phones. And I'm programming in new information to the phones that I'm able to use the phones. And then I'm putting the phones into test mode so that I can hear parts of conversations from people who are talking nearby. It's because the cell phone back then was just a radio. It wasn't right. encrypted or anything. It wasn't digital. Yeah. So that was crazy for them to see a kid do that because they had never seen anyone do that, let alone an actual child. And so that was, and that was kind of my hobby. And I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to do something else illegal. And they're like, this is illegal, but don't worry about that. What you need to do is you need to like, not get in trouble and do stupid stuff, but you, we also want to see how all this works. And then I started to distract myself with things that were a little bit more wholesome. I got a job at a movie theater and things like that. I was still doing fun little hacking projects, but I was just being more careful. And I worked at this movie theater and the guy who owned the movie theater, well, his daughter owned the movie theater. He owned the Detroit Red Wings hockey team and Little Caesars Pizza. So he was one of the wealthiest guys in America, actually. Yeah. And uh, his name was Mike Illich. His daughter owned this movie theater. And they had, I don't know, theft or maybe some other issues. I mean, since she was the daughter of one of the most wealthy men in America, they had a security guy that was hanging out. And he was probably supposed to make sure that there was nothing really shady going on. But he was bored. I mean, he worked at a movie theater, but he was like an ex-military special forces guy who is now a private investigator. And he's working at a freaking movie theater, right? It's just ridiculous. So him and I would talk and I would tell him about 
wiretapping and phone hacking and websites and email communication. I mean, again, it's 1996. You know, this is all new. And he's like, man, I can't believe you understand all this stuff. So he said, look, you need to come down to my office where I train my security guys and show us some of this stuff. And I'll show you some real karate because I was into karate. Uh He's like, the stuff you're learning is fake. And I was like, it's not fake. I know my katas or whatever. And he's like, it's fake, man. He's like, look, if we ever spar, I'm just going to hit you once and you'll be, you'll be wrecked. And I was like, oh, I can, I can block it, you know? And I, but sure enough, he, we put on protective gear the first time I went to his office and I just got annihilated. And I yeah. was like, what the hell's going on? I know all these amazing, you know, Seuchin kata punches and stuff. And he's like, this is all BS, man. It's, it's like, it's like spiritual practice. It's not really fighting. It, it was fighting 200 years ago. It's not that anymore. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's not real. And, and also there's things that are superior to that now. And so I, I was blown away. So he was teaching me how to disarm guns and like deal with knives and all this cool, cr- real karate, real martial arts stuff that nobody was talking about back then. And we would watch the MMA stuff on VHS tapes that the guys at the office would have. And, you know, somebody would have recorded the new pay-per-view and we'd all watch it. So there was a lot of really interesting things like this going on around me. And I showed those guys how to create, well, I didn't show them. I made websites for the team. I ended up driving uh, the officers a lot of places. I quit my job at the movie theater, started working at the security company because it paid better. It was all cash. It was all under the table. And I was in charge of driving all the guys around because I was the only white guy for a long time at work. And when you're driving around Detroit, if you're a white kid in an SUV, it's kind of par for the course. But if you're a bunch of black dudes in a car, you get pulled over all the time. And when you get pulled over and you've got an extendable baton and you're all black tactical gear because you're working for security, you have to explain and you've got some explaining to do and you end up being late for work. So my job was to get people around. I had tinted back windows. My job was to transport everybody. So I just looked like a kid schlepping around Detroit on the weekend. And it was was fun because I got to see that, I got to see stuff no kid gets to see. You know, and I was working with guys that some of them had just gotten out of jail. Other guys were ex-special forces. I mean, it was just like next level. And I was only 17, 18 years old at this point in time. It was fascinating. So, so you, you, you know, you, uh, from, from reading everything I read and listening to some interviews, you also became a lawyer and worked on Wall Street before you got into your podcasting career. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I, I, yeah. So fast forwarding about almost 10 years. Yeah. I became an attorney and worked on wall street. And so, you know, because you're, you're kind of known as one of the pioneers of podcasting. Um, and, uh, I don't know how was, where was your podcast, uh, as far as when Joe Rogan started getting popular, were you before Joe Rogan? Yeah, I was before Joe Rogan by a couple of years. Obviously his show is enormous. I mean, he, he's a great performer, great host, but also, he rode the, he was on TV when he started his show, so that didn't hurt. Then he rode right. the MMA, the, the mixed martial arts wave to fame and stardom. And now he's riding the podcast wave to monetization. So this is a guy who caught like some pretty big gusts of wind, if you will. And I'm, I'm happy for it because he, he look, I'm a medium Joe Rogan fan, right? I don't know about you. Like, I think he could do better if he prepared a little bit more for some of his conversations, but that's not his style. Right. But I'm also really glad that he's got the most popular 
podcast around and it's not like one of these shyster motivational guys or like Tony Robbins or something, you know? Yeah. I, I do like, I do like his show because he's open. He gets into all the controversial issues and, you know, whatever it be from psychedelics to sex or whatever. And so it's nice to have an open forum out there. And, and, and I, and in your interview that I watched, uh, that you, you did talk about the importance of preparation and, uh, you know, all, all the kind of things to run a nice clean interview, which I thought was really good to hear. Um, so you, you, uh, then you, what's now you're focusing more on sharing, if I understood it right, sharing kind of key people that are successful. Is that correct? Uh, can you repeat that? I'm not sure I picked up the question in there. Uh, I, what I got from the stuff I looked into on your website and the reading I did is that you're now sharing your podcast is more about sharing uh, people that are very successful and how they did it. Yeah. I mean, I also pick up interesting stories. You know, I just did a show right before this with a general who is on the Joint Chiefs of Staff or was on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And his primary concern is China's economic war with the United States. It's not just that they're out competing us. It's deliberately designed to destroy U.S. infrastructure, industry, and eventually force totalitarian government governance over the Western world. Like, it's really not just about making money. So that to me was interesting, but it was less about him and more about China. But yeah, the, you know, a couple of Days ago, we aired a show with Frank Abagnale, who is the the subject of the movie Catch Me If You Can. He's probably one of the most successful con artists, uh, imposters in the world. You know, he impersonated a, a lawyer, an FBI agent, a pilot, a doctor. I mean, he's and this is all before age twenty one. So, the people I profile on the show are super interesting and have something to teach the listening audience that they can use. So, I, I don't I don't indulge in like BS conspiracy theories or like metaphysical stuff or any of that sort of woo woo stuff. I don't deal with that. I deal with what I consider or not what I consider, what is considered to be real science and or true stories, not like aliens built the pyramids, man, spark up a J. Like I'm not, I'm not in that camp. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, I'm hip to hip to that. Um, I, I don't think we need to spark up a joint to, (laughs) <laughs> meditate on the the uh, pyramids because we still can't build one today, even though we can put people on the moon. So that leaves some very big question marks. <laughs> I suppose, but I don't know. Can we not build one, or we just haven't? I mean, it's not like it's impossible to build a pyramid. It's just not economically feasible. Well, from my studies, we don't have the technology a to move hundred hundred ton blocks of stone that are cut with laser precision i mean i've i've got friends and people that i know and people that i've studied like greg braden and and people have told me you can't even slide a feeler gauge like you use to adjust the spark plug gap on a car between those blocks because they're so precisely cut and having studied many books on these things it, it you know anybody that really has an engineering background and analyzes them is left with just one huge gaping question mark Maybe. I mean, I'm not totally sure about that. I'd have to research that for sure. But I, when I look at guys like Greg Braden, I just kind of go, that's a guy that I would never have on my show because he, he looks like he's just making shit up. So I think I'm probably offending some of the audience here, but I know I'm not one to sort of mince words either. Like magnetic field might have effects on human DNA. Would love to see the science on that. Not sure. 
but definitely don't think collective prayer has healing physical effects unless we're talking about pure placebo. You know, it's it's interesting. That's uh, you're kind of, you know, now you're in my territory. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the show. I'm really excited to tell you about Mike Salemi's new program called Mastering the Kettlebell, an amazing online program that you can do from the comfort of your own home, your home gym, or the gym you like to frequent. You can simply take your phone or tablet right into the gym and you'll feel like Mike is right there guiding you every step of the way. There's no question Mike is the most accomplished kettlebell athlete I've ever worked with, and I worked with him personally for two and a half years to master his own body, program design, assessment techniques, and customize his lifting technique for his individual needs. Now Mike offers you everything I've taught him and much more in his awesome Master the Kettlebell program. Mike's also a highly skilled Czech professional and incorporates numerous key assessments to be sure you have the physical ability to perform each exercise and that you're ready for each exercise. If you don't pass any of the screening tests he offers, he gives you corrective approaches that will help you so you can train safely with kettlebells. One of the key things that causes people problems in the kettlebell world is a lack of stabilizer conditioning and static postural stability And that's a common cause of injuries amongst kettlebell athletes. I've seen many of them over the years. Mike not only shows you how to have optimal stabilizer function and static stability, he teaches you optimal form, which is dynamic stability. How do you maintain an optimal instantaneous axis of rotation or optimal working position of each of the joints and each of the components of your body? He does this with over 100 kettlebell exercises. Mike also has an excellent support system for all Master the Kettlebell students, starting with a Facebook community where you can ask your questions and share concepts with other kettlebell enthusiasts. You can reach Mike by email where he'll answer your questions directly, or if you want, you can hire Mike for personal mentoring in person, or he can do it at a distance using Facebook or Skype. This program is excellent for anyone wanting functional strength and fitness and is an excellent In fact, incredible education for Czech professionals, trainers, strength coaches, and rehabilitation professionals alike. I give you my word that Mike's MTK, Master the Kettlebell Program, is the most complete, most effective kettlebell training program I've ever seen worldwide, and you can do it from the comfort of your own home or gym. As I said before, you can take your phone or tablet right into the gym, and Mike guides you through all the tests and exercises personally. You'll literally feel like you're being personally coached by Mike one of the greatest kettlebell athletes in the world. Mike has many Russian Masters titles now. He's won a world championship, and he truly has mastered the kettlebell. Mike's taught me a lot, and I'm sure you'll be amazed at what he can teach you. Mike will personally show you how to flow with gravity and train with levity. I'll give you an interesting resource, uh, a couple of them. One, there's a book called One Mind by Larry Dossie. And... Uh, it's absolutely excellent. And then there's all sorts of work by Dean Radin, who's a very top scientist and very celebrated for his research. So any of his books is very, very amazing. But Larry Dossie has, uh, I can't remember the title of his book that looks at prayer exactly. And it's just absolutely loaded with scientific studies. And uh, Greg Braden on his show, Missing Links, actually shows up-to-date current science, even military science demonstrating all sorts of things that that uh would fall into what you would call the woo-woo camp but he demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt and leaves a very solid paper trail because i've actually looked up some of those references 
for yeah. the scientific evidence of a lot of these things. That stuff is interesting, and I, I like talking with scientists to find out if what we're reading means what we think it does. Because guys like, for example, Bruce Lipton, who's literally just making bullshit up, is reading real science and then saying, and therefore, da 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 And it's like, no, not really. You know, like, it's just misleading, and it works really well if you want to make a personal brand, but it doesn't work well if you're trying to teach people something that's true. And I, I tend to be more like truth is more important than me creating a name for myself so I can sell books. You know, Yeah, like, I can appreciate that, but, but at the same time, I, I have to uh, interject something, and that is that science's truth changes quite frequently. And, by design. Know, by design. Well, it, yeah, it, it, you can say that. And when you say by design, do you mean because they're constantly pursuing the truth? Yes. And they're constantly trying to disprove a hypothesis. Whereas right. somebody like Bruce Lipton will go, this is my hypothesis. Now I'm going to look for, like flat earthers. I'm going to look for reasons the earth is flat. Sorry, that's not how science works. You come up with a hypothesis and you disprove it. You don't look for reasons to prove the thing that you think is true. They're doing it backwards. That's why they keep failing, but also why they can't change their mind. They, they're thinking about science the wrong way because they are not scientists, or they're, they're at least they're flawed in their use of the scientific method because they get power and social structure from being online and complaining about how the earth is flat and how everyone's wrong but them. You know, it's just crazy. It's actually just crazy. Yeah, well, you know, the whole earth is flat thing, I, I don't know. It amazes me when people... A, don't have common sense. And it, with with those kinds of people, it doesn't matter whether you're using science or whether you're using any other approach. It's just right. some people just get ideas in their heads. And I even had a friend of mine approach me and start chewing me up one side and down the other about the flat earth theory. And he's a quite a famous athlete. I just said to him, I said, you know, if you trust me at all, I would just kind of park that and not talk about that too much because we have far too much advanced technology. I said, you know, my wife's a pilot and I saw her studying her, her uh, training manuals for navigation. And I'm like, you know, the entire navigational system wouldn't work if we had a flat earth. It would, it would be very, very different than it is. And we have these things called satellites and, you know, so, you know, it's just like some people don't look at, even the obvious, you know. Agree. And, and you know what? I've found, I, I've engaged with some of these people to a certain extent, and you really do see there's a couple of camps, not to get too far down the flat earth tangent, but there's a couple of camps with these, these kooks, right? One is the people that feel like they're so far down that rabbit hole and they're giving talks and they feel important and they make a name for themselves online, but meanwhile, their real life is very unexciting. So I understand the temptation there. And then there's another camp that I've found where if you ask enough questions, you find that it's just religious gobbledygook where they're like, no, because if that's, if the earth is round, that means this particular set of religious teachings means that there's no angels above the firmament and Jesus this and God that and Catholicism this and the Pope and the Bible that. And you go, aha, this is dogma, not science. You finally outed yourself. This is why you believe this not because all of the quote-unquote evidence you've looked at makes sense, but because you're discarding everything that's not from a religious piece of scripture. And it's just like, so it's you have to get to people's intent. The larger motive here is you have to get to people's intent behind what they're doing. Like for me, I find that 
America and the world is just getting dumber. And it's not necessarily true in terms of raw numbers like IQs or anything like that. It's just that people will believe, they'll take any source of information and they'll believe it. And that really aggravates me because that, it sounds harmless at first, but it's not. It's not harmless when somebody thinks, well, this blog I read from this random wacko in uh, Boise, Idaho, that's just as that's weighted just as importantly as a book written by somebody who won uh, a Pulitzer Prize for journalism a few years ago. No, it isn't. One person lives in a basement and watches Alex Jones, and the other person did a bunch of research and has done a bunch of other research and won a bunch of awards from people that have checked that stuff. These are not equally weighted sources. And to think that is dangerous because then you spread absolute total garbage. And it makes people powerless when you start believing in BS like conspiracies. Conspiracy theories in general or any sort of garbage that takes root, it, it really, you'll find this. And I don't know, Paul, if you've lived abroad or anything like that. Um, but a lot. you have you. Okay, cool. So I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've found that conspiracy theories are rife and really run even more rampant in countries where people are with a government that lies a lot. So if you live in Russia, you're probably more into conspiracies than somebody who lives in Germany because of transparency. People who live in the Scandinavian states where the governments have a lot of transparency, you really have to dig to find people that believe in stupid ass BS conspiracy theories because they aren't afraid of everything all the time. So it's fear based and it's the idea that they can't find any truth because they can't find it even from people and institutions that they're supposed to trust. And so this rise of conspiracy theories here in the United States, I think it's a uh, unfortunately it's a barometer of people's trust in each other. And so it's not just like, oh, look at this Alex Jones guy, what a lunatic, smart people don't believe him. There are plenty of people that should know better that are starting to think, well, maybe there is something to this because I've heard it from so many places and can't trust the media these days. I mean, that's a dangerous notion. And it actually leads to an unhealthy cover, uh, country, an unhealthy discourse. Yeah, you know, I get approached by students and I've studied a fair bit of the conspiracy theory stuff just to see what people are talking about. I spent a lot of time listening to and reading David Icke's books and a variety of other sources because there's a fair bit of that information out there. But when my students come to me all jacked up on, you know, because people can get quite wound up and freaked out when they right. start getting into all that. But I just tell them, look, you've been living on this planet for X number of years now, call it 30, let's say. And you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you eat breakfast, you go out, hopefully make some money and you know, contribute to the world in some way. And that's never changed while these conspiracy theories have been around. So, you know, at the end of the day, if the conspiracy theories are true, there's not a damn thing you're going to do about it because, you know, most of the conspiracy theories are about, you know, the, the rich people controlling everybody else and, and so on and so forth. So. I, my point is at the end of the day, it's like you can lose a lot of time, energy and, and inner resources worrying about something and festering about something and yakking about something that ultimately could be used to eat better, uh, exercise better, do something productive with your life and, you know, make a contribution to the world that's actually tangible. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. So all these conspiracy theorists, people are, who are running around in circles, 
maybe this is maybe the big conspiracy here is look how distracted all of you are with all this baloney instead of doing something to improve yourself or the world around you or your community. Look, you're just sitting here thinking about uh, why Roswell aliens are covered up at Area 51 instead of you know making sure that your kid gets into a good college so that he doesn't have to live in the trailer with you for the next 30 years. You know, like that kind of stuff is just, yeah. to me, kind of borderline offensive. I mean, I get it that it's it's reality TV for people who think they're too smart for reality TV. Yeah, well, you know, having been around the world uh, a lot, you know, and, and devoted my career to helping people, I've been doing this for 35 years. I've run across every kind of person you can imagine from the hardcore left brain scientists to the you know, meditators that are trying to levitate and everything in between. And, you know, I think that if you look at this planet, you can see that there's such a vast diversity of beliefs and ideas and experiences and, you know, modes of expression from music to dance to science to communication. It, to me, the, the earth is like a playground for souls to come, you know, figure out who they are and what they are. And ultimately, uh, you know, if you get to the point where you have a, a deeper sense of awareness and connection to yourself and you can find meaning in life and you can support other people and gaining a sense of confidence in their life and a sense of, um, the joy of contributing and, and the joy of being part of something bigger, because ultimately we're all somehow strangely supporting each other's lives, even in, in ways that we may not, you know, there could be a lot of people, for example, that are in love with conspiracy theories, hearing your opinions on them, thinking this guy's an asshole. He, he doesn't know this, what he's talking about. But at the same time, that's a beautiful opportunity to to see the other side of the coin. You know, as you know, people fall in love with what, with their own ideas, but they don't investigate the other side. It's kind of like people that have no belief in, in anything that has to do with psi, but they don't read the research and they don't realize there's very, very elite scientists doing research on that that have got very solid research looking into these things. So it's almost as bad as conspiracy theory to only fall in love with your own opinions and your own bias and not be brave enough to look into the other side. So my feeling is at the end of the day, as crazy and wild as it is, it's, I think the world's quite magical. I hear you. I mean, I think the conspiracy ideas are, are interesting in some ways. In fact, when I was a kid, I used to be really into that stuff. The difference is now that I've learned critical thinking skills, and I can look at research and go, aha, they're twisting this. I mean, that's what you learn in law school. You start to learn to become a rational thinker. And I'm sure there's people going, he's been brainwashed by the system. Fine. Uh, but like looking at the scientific method that people use and looking at how people are trying to prove things like flat earth, for example, or uh, ancient aliens, it's just there's absolutely not enough or no evidence to prove those theories. And I think part of the reason that I stopped believing in that stuff is because when I was a kid, I didn't have power. I had no economic freedom, right? That stuff was more appealing to me. Now I'm doing quite well with the Jordan Harbinger show. I was an attorney on Wall Street. So I don't feel the need to believe in something like that in order to feel like I have hope or power. And I think that's what comes down when it comes to the psychology of that. I think that's what makes sense. Now, do I think that 
the government needs to step in and, and stop people from lying to us about what's in our food. Yeah. Or somebody needs to do that. Right. And I think we need to do our own research about things that we eat. So I'm not saying that everything that looks like a conspiracy theory is blatantly wrong. But when I see people say things like, I'm trying to find another one that's not flat earth and not uh, ancient aliens. Give me a conspiracy theory that's popular right now. Oh, you know, uh, let's see. I, you know, because it, because of, because of the reasons I shared, I hardly really, you know, a, a conspiracy theory that's popular right now is to do with the banking system and that, you know, the United States government has no money and, and we're all basically, uh, employees for the U.S. government and admiralty law is the law. And therefore we're all incorporated. We have really no rights as an individual because we're all corporations. So there's, there's a couple of them. Oh, right. Yeah. That whole sovereign citizen stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these are powerless people. You don't meet people who are in those groups that are like socially or financially affluent. You just don't. You meet people who are on the bottom rung of the economic ladder. Why is that? There's good reasons for that. And of course, they'll say, no, there are plenty of people in our groups that are doctors and lawyers. They're just undercover. Really? Is that the case? Because those are your best spokespeople, not the person who just got out of jail and says, I am not driving, I am traveling, am I being detained, am I being detained? Like, these are not good spokespeople for your cause. So for me, when I look at this, I just think there's a reason that people on the bottom of the socioeconomic scale are the ones that are most involved in this. And it's not because they're stupid, it's because there's something else going on. And it's an interesting psychological and sociological phenomenon. Yeah. Well, you know, when I look through your work and I look through your articles and could see you've, you've written on quite a variety of topics and, and a lot of them are things that interest me. The Czech Institute has a four-year program in corrective and high-performance exercise where we teach the science of using exercise for healing and then also how to design scientifically-based and sound uh, progressive developmental programs for athletes or anybody, you know, say Jordan hires me and wants to climb Mount Kilimanjaro but he comes to me with a blown L5S1 disc, uh, for example. So our, our students, which is a multidisciplinary program ranging from medical doctors and nurses to chiropractors and osteopaths, all the way to massage therapists and personal trainers. Um, and we also have a one and a half year holistic lifestyle coaching program where we teach people how to assess a person's diet and key lifestyle factors and make suggestions to help bring them into balance with, you know, fundamental principles. So I, my program's based on six foundation principles, nutrition, hydration, sleep, breathing, thinking, and movement. And then I have a, a program called PPS Success Mastery, which is uh, 12 lessons that I found after years of being a therapist and coach to people that were the 12 most common things that stop people from achieving success in their life or in their career. And so I was looking through a lot of your articles and a lot of the things you're writing about are things that I write about and talk about. And a lot of your viewpoints are very, very similar to mine. So I found that interesting. And, um, you know, what are the things I wanted to share with you to sort of set up a, a question for you is I teach a four step approach to assessing one's current situation in life and for living fully. So it's a one, two, three, four approach. One is one love. What do you, love more than your challenge right now. I, I use the quote by Jerry Wesh, if you have a big enough dream, you don't need a nightmare. So if someone comes to me or one of my practitioners with a challenge, 
I found the first thing we got to do is figure out what they're inspired to change for, or no matter how good your program is, they're not really motivated to change. So the one love is, you know, what, what is it that you want to accomplish? What is your dream goal or objective that brought you here? And if they're not clear on that, which frequently they're not, then I teach them to narrow that down and find something that they have at least a seven out of a 10 on a 10 scale of motivation, 10 being, you know, kamikaze pilot, zero being not interested at all or apathetic. So I found if they don't have at least a seven out of 10 in interest, then they're not going to comply with the program. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you've been following my work for any length of time at all, you know how important organic food and organic farming is, not only for the health of the soil and to protect all the little beings in nature from toxic chemicals and throwing nature completely out of balance, which directly affects us, but also for our own health and well-being. We all need nutrient-dense foods for body-mind well-being. And I'm so excited about the Organifi line. Organifi is a product line made of certified organic source materials. And I've checked this out personally. I can guarantee you that. One of my favorites that I've recently tried is their red juice, which has acai and cordyceps infused into it. It's a super, super tasty product. And it revitalizes skin cells, supports your metabolism, has antioxidants in it, age-fighting nutrients, helps mental clarity. It's got a lovely natural sweet flavor. And something that I found really interesting, if you go to Organifi.com and look up the red juice, they show you a price per serving comparison against Palm Wonderful, Red Bull, Gatorade, and a Starbucks latte. And Organifi red juice is actually significantly more cost-effective considering not only the price but the density of the nutrients in it. I think you'll be really amazed with this red juice, along with all their other products. If you go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and as you're checking out, use the code lowercase c-h-e-k-20 altogether, you will get a 20% discount on your Organifi purchases. I'm super excited to share this company. I've tested their products. My family's tested their products. And we're all behind them. And I know you're going to be satisfied because this is the real deal. This is true nutrition. Check it out. As you check out, C-H-E-K-20 to get your discount. Thanks for joining me. Hope you to continue to enjoy the podcast. And if you love it, share it with as many people as you can. So step one is identify what it is that they're there for and what they're motivated and inspired to achieve. Two is two forces, the male and the female. So we analyze their chart and their findings to say, where are you for, you know, the male force, yang, means division of power. The female force, yin, means multiplication of power. So for example, when you go to sleep at night, that's very yin, and you're multiplying power, you're gaining power, just like if you plug in a cell phone and recharge it. Yang, you're dividing power. So the more things you're involved in, the more activities you do, the longer you stay up, the more power you use. So we're looking to see, based on a person's baseline level of health and well-being, what is their resources and how are they using their available energy and resources, and is that bringing them into health? So we're looking to see, are they balanced with regard to these two forces? Three is choices. My philosophy is there's only three choices you can make in relationship to any person, place, or thing. 
the optimal, which is the best choice for everybody involved that you're working with or creating with, or your, you know, maybe your spouse or your, your co, your coworkers at work. The suboptimal is the choice that gives you instant gratification, but usually causes problems on your dream team. And the third choice is to do nothing, which can be negative if you're doing nothing when you need to be doing something that won't produce a good result. But the positive two options are if you need more information, such as if you're buying a car and you're being pressure sold, do nothing means don't make a choice that's going to cost you money or make a commitment until you've done your research and you know for sure what you're choosing. And the other application of do nothing is taking a time out. So if you're having an argument with somebody and, and you're, it's getting heated and it's actually causing potential an injury in the relationship, then doing nothing is like taking a time out in sports when you've got to regroup yourself so you don't lose connection to the person and you don't act in ways that cause pain in the relationship. But you're honest about saying, look, I can't contribute to the conversation right now because I'm losing my connection here either to you or to the, to the discussion. And then finally, the four, step four is four doctors. So I break life into four key categories. Doctor happiness represents the mind and our uh, being clear about what is happy making for us in our life so that we know how to and can take responsibility for creating our own happiness instead of depending on drugs or other people to do it. Uh, Doctor diet is being aware of what your body runs best on instead of following diet plans, paying attention to when your body's responding favorably to be it flesh foods or plant foods or, you know, whatever you're putting in your body from liquids, you know, soda pops, obviously going to have a different effect in your body than water, for example. So we have Dr. Diet. Dr. Quiet is understanding the principles of rest and how to use rest to create your dreams and live your life or be an effective athlete or whatever you're doing. Rest is critical. So Dr. Happiness is the mind. Dr. Movement, taking action and keeping your body in shape. Dr. Diet is uh, the food that you eat and the water that you drink or the things you put into your body as liquids. And then Dr. Quiet is rest. So in this approach, we what is your dream? Where are you out of balance? What choices are you willing to make to bring yourself into balance with the four Dr. Core values that, that we work with each person to create? And so I was reading your article called Struggling to Find Your Purpose, Do This Instead. And in there, you had some uh, mentions of a CDC investigation into well-being, which I thought were interesting. And uh, you wrote down there, when asked if their lives have a clear sense of purpose, only one in five Americans strongly agreed. When asked if they have a good sense of what makes their life meaningful, one in three strongly agreed. And when researchers ask participants if they've uh, discovered satisfying, a satisfying life purpose, nearly 40% reported that they hadn't. And shortly ago, I watched a, a, a speech by Arnold Schwarzenegger. I just happened to come across it on YouTube. And he quoted a study that uh, looked at whether people were happy in their jobs. And he said in Europe, 70% said they did not like their jobs. In the United States, he said 75% said they hated their jobs. So with that preface, I'm a cu curious to hear your opinion. How important do you feel it is for people to do their best to stick to the things that they love to do, even when they have to make money to keep bills paid and live, but may not have found their ultimate 
purpose in life. You know, in other words, I'm not really sure what their life purpose is all about. You know, I read how about it took you a while to figure it out, and it does take most people a while. But when you're looking at how much illness is created by people going to work and being disgruntled and not being able to express their creativity and, you know, basically telling themselves what they've got to do to make a living, I'm curious to you with for your opinion, how important do you think it is if a person's in a situation, they got to go get a job, whether it be flipping burgers or working as an assistant to a bricklayer or a construction crew or a parking lot attendant? How important do you think it is to choose the thing that gives you the greatest sense of connection and fulfillment as opposed to just taking whatever you can get to make money? I think that I'm I'm of the opinion that you don't need to go out and find your passion. I think this is like a, a lie that millennials have been sold where you need to go and find your passion and turn that into your job. I mean, that's a great ideal outcome. But uh, the problem with telling people to do that is until they have done that, a lot of people think, oh, I'm I'm only in this temporary position. I don't want to invest in this career at this bank or invest in my career at this law firm or wherever I'm at because I need to find my passion. So you get a whole bunch of people who decide that they're going to be unhappy until they find what it is they're passionate about. They have no idea how to find that. And their passion should also ideally make them a million dollars and be mostly done from the beach. And it's just unhealthy. I'm not saying you have to relegate yourself to a job that you hate, but I think a lot of people make themselves much more miserable than they need to be because they've decided that they're entitled to be happy at work all the time. And that's just really unrealistic, especially for people in their 20s who have to learn useful skills that most of them do not have. So I'm of the opinion that you need to develop passion for what you are doing by becoming good at what you do. I, uh, I had to do a sales job for a while and I really didn't wanna sell. And I avoided it and I avoided it and I avoided it. And then when I started, I hated it. And I kept going and I hated it. And I kept going and I kept going and I kept going because I had to survive. And then I, I grew to love it. And I started getting really good at it. And then I became a sales trainer and I routinely help sales teams now learn rapport building uh, and other exercises that are great for sales. I mean, the same stuff that I teach intelligence agencies, secret service, private corporations, I will train a, a sales team because I'm really, really into that stuff. Now, I didn't decide I'm passionate about sales. It happened over a period of years. It right. happened because I got good at it. You don't, you don't go and find your passion. You bring your passion with you when you go and do something else, and eventually you learn to love what you do. That won't always happen, but it happens more often than people would like to uh, think. And the, the problem is a lot of these millennial kids especially, and I am one of them, so I'm not just hating millennials, a lot of them, us, we will go somewhere and go, I know I don't like this because it's day three and it sucks, so I'm just gonna decide that this is not where, I'm, where I am where deserve to be, and I'm gonna do my side hustle because I watch YouTubers, and I'm decided I wanna do that or be on Instagram or whatever, and it's like, that's just not how successful people develop businesses. I don't know any successful business person that decided to do something they love, and then dot, 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 they made a bunch of money doing it. I'm sure it exists, but most of them decided to solve a problem for other people. Their business wasn't all fun and games. 
it might look now like, oh man, Jordan Harbinger, he does the Jordan Harbinger show and he interviews all these awesome people and half of his day is spent reading and then he has conversations and it's really fun and he makes a bunch of money doing it. I've, I'm on year 13 of this and, right, I consider, yeah. and I consider myself fortunate for having been able to find it. I'm on year 13 of this, but remember I started screwing around with hobbies and passions and things like that when I was 13 years old. I'm 40 almost. So this is not something that happens overnight. I didn't start out to be, I want to be the best interviewer in the world. You know, I I have those feelings now. I want to be in the best, uh, one of the best interviewers in the world, but that's a recent phenomenon. I didn't even think interviewing was a skill I gave a crap about until year seven or eight of doing the show. That's, that's a long-term timeframe. Yeah. I I very much appreciate your, perspective on that and actually i have a podcast called evolve your career and in that podcast i talk about my own path to figuring out what i was here on the planet to do and you know i've coached countless thousands of people in my 35 year career so i've you know and i work with many millionaires and billionaires and movie stars and famous athletes and olympic committees so i'm pretty you know hip to the minds of very, very successful people. And I think part of part of the kind of qualifier that I would throw in is that it depends a lot on what stage of your life you're in. But, you know, for example, uh, as a kid, I was very successful at motocross racing. I was when I was a young man, I was a stock car racer. I set three track records um, and I was very passionate about those things. And I was very in love with those things. And I was even told I could make a career of those things by people that had a lot more skill and knowledge in those professions than I did. But something inside of me knew inherently that that wasn't what I came to this planet to do. Now, I wouldn't have expressed it in those words, but when I was facing an option to turn pro and start racing stock cars professionally, I just didn't feel like it was what I was supposed to do. I couldn't put words on it. And I ended up in the military in the 82nd Airborne Division, repairing weapon systems on Cobra helicopters, which led to my uh, becoming a fighter on the Army boxing team, which led to me becoming the trainer. And all of a sudden, I found that when I was helping people win fights and, and win athletic competitions and get over injuries and feel better, everything inside of me lined up. And all of a sudden, I realized that all the things that I had done up to that point, which was many jobs, especially being raised on a farm. I mean, as a kid, I could weld, I could run machinery, I could repair machinery. I went to trade school as a young man and got my license as an automotive and industrial repair specialist. So I had a lot of skills that were interesting to me, but I would have never at any point along the way said, this is what, this is it. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I just found that I was interested enough to stay interested And I always had this sense of wanting to do my best just because I wanted to do the best at everything I did. I think that was just inherent in me. So what I'm really pointing out is um, some people aren't really, they don't have enough life experience to even know themselves well enough to know what their dream might be or what they're in love with. But But at the same time, when we do orient ourselves towards things that interest us and captivate our attention, I think we're much more likely to do a good job. I think we're much more likely to learn well. And I think we're much more likely to find out one day that that job that we didn't like but paid attention to turned out to have 
uh, elements or skills or abilities that we now end up using. For example, have you, I think you pretty much stated that now in your work, all those things that you did from the time you were, you know, hacking phones all the way up till now, even though you may not have necessarily been in love with them, haven't you found that somehow those skills and that knowledge makes you excellent at what you do today? Yeah. I mean, the whole sales thing that I later on fell in love with, like I said, turned out to be a way of generating rapport, persuasive speech, critical thinking, handling objections. I mean, these are things I use on the show all the time. And I wouldn't have developed them if I didn't have, if I wasn't forced into the sales role. Uh, what else? You know, law and being a lawyer. Didn't love that. Mostly didn't like it. Now, though, when I read books and someone says, oh, well, this might have happened and this might have happened, I can parse the argument because I have three years at one of the best law schools in the world, uh, University of Michigan. And so, like, I use all of these skills and the path that I've taken has, has brought me where I am, of course, and exactly in every way. And that's not to say that right now, if you're a ditch digger and you hate every minute of your job, that you've just got to sit there until you fall in love with it. You don't have to find your purpose in your work. I think a lot of people don't realize that. There are tons of people that have a job they don't love. So they do what they do, they do the job, and then they come home. And if they're lacking purpose, they go volunteer. They read to kids. They work at a homeless shelter. They start a nonprofit. You don't have to make your job your hobby. In fact, I advise most people, especially if they're in their 20s, not to do this because people love turning their hobby into their job. And then three years later, they go, I hate this because mm -hmm. they turned their hobby into their job and they ruined it. Yeah, it's like being an artist that goes from being somebody who loves to express themselves artistically to having you know, a $10,000 overhead with a salesperson, a studio, and now they're <laughs> trying to make art with a metaphorical gun to their head. So right. you know, I, I, I know very well because people come to me from all over the world with all sorts of health problems and I have to investigate all these things. And so one of the things that I find very frequently behind things like irritable bowel syndrome and chronic fatigue syndrome and, and these types of syndromes is that people are in relationships that they don't want to be in. Maybe uh, someone's got a wife and three kids, but they haven't had sex in eight years. They sleep in separate bedrooms and they think God's going to burn them in hell if they get a divorce. And so there I have to say, well, you know, first of all, you're making God very bored. That's, that's, that, that, that excuse is as old as hell. Second of all, you're teaching your kids how to uh, basically have a fucked up relationship. And third of all, you don't have, we need to work on your confidence that you, that you can share love with other people and find freedom in your life. And fourth of all, you know, you're probably not being very honest about your true feelings in the relationship, which means that we have to work on your relationship skills. So the point that I'm making is if a person just stays at something just because they have convinced themselves that's what they have to do in order to survive or nobody's going to love me or I'll never have this much money if I marry somebody else, dot, dot, dot. Well, then they just set themselves up for a, a, a life of, you know, chronic health problems and relationship problems, and they don't have enough motivation to be good at about anything. I, I agree. Look, I think most people lose motivation if they can't. I, I think th this is, well, let me back up. The, the problem goes back to what we were originally talking about, which is people feel like, because they watch a bunch of YouTube videos or look at influencers online, 
that they have to make their job something they love or they have to do something they love for work and never feels like they're working a day in their life and all these other things. What I, speaking of conspiracies, I think what people don't realize is the vast majority of people posting things like that online are selling courses on how to work from home or how to turn your passion into your career, all this other stuff. They're selling a dream. There's There are tons of popular influencers that teach people how to become an influencer online, do what you love all day, be a professional influencer, start your business on the internet. You know what they have for sale? $40,000 a year mastermind group where you learn the real stuff, not the stuff from their book or their courses. That's for beginners. If you're really serious about it, quit your job and then take their $25,000, $40,000 a year mastermind. Here's the problem. People don't think about this. What happens when you quit your job and you give your whole savings, 25, 40K over to somebody and they tell you you're going to use it to make money? What happens? Uh. You're, I know. I, I know you. what happens. I've seen it. Yeah, they <laughs> I've own seen you. it happen. I've watched it happen, and 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 you know, and and that's. I think that's part of the the, the human condition. I think that's uh, you know we don't have. Uh, I don't think we have good leadership for young people. I don't think we have many wise elders. Most of the people today are so caught in consumerism that grandparents are getting boob jobs, and you know not focusing on really the opportunity they have to pass wisdom on, but kind of trying to extend their life and stay young in, in many ways, or they just get burned out and don't seem to want to participate a lot. But, you know, when you look at, at tribal cultures, the grandparents did most of the educating of the kids, the elders did most of the educating of the kids while the parents were out hunting and gathering. And they taught from their wisdom and they use mostly oral teachings through myths and stories and acting out plays and you know what do you do if a war starts and things like that so they had the wisest uh, most experienced people who also had lived enough that they had empathy and compassion for what kids not only were going through but are likely to go through and that's a very big difference to the kind of education systems and support systems we're dealing with today. So I think part of the problem is that, is that we really have a, a mythological and a cultural breakdown occurring. I could see that. Kaizen is the Japanese philosophy and science of constant and never-ending improvement. You may have heard it called Kani in the Western world. It's a principle we strive to embody here at the Czech Institute, and there's no better example of that than Paul's Czech Academy. Each year, we review the feedback from the students, faculty, and support staff. We look into the latest research on learning, and we use all of that to improve the academy. That means if your goal is to become a true master of holistic health and performance, there's never been a more exciting time to apply to the Czech Academy. For the 2019-2020 year, we are adding five brand new courses, including Walking Tall, an in-depth course on gait analysis, Practical Applications of Breathing, Posture and Movement, an online course that will teach you essential assessment and exercise techniques to achieve optimal breathing, Infant Development, another online course showing you how to assess for disruptions to motor skill development and exercise techniques to recover from those disruptions. Holistic Health and Performance for Women, a groundbreaking online course that dives deep into the theory and practice of training women. And our Golf Performance Specialist Online, 
This course will provide you with hours of in-depth training in assessment, coaching, proper exercise technique, and program design specifically for golfers. And that's just the start of our improvements to the Czech Academy. So if you embrace the principle of Kaizen like we do, if you have the commitment, passion, and dedication it takes to become a true master of holistic health and performance, then we invite you to apply to the Czech Academy now. Visit us online at checkinstitute.com forward slash academy to get started. And now, back to Living 4D with Paul Check. You know, I can see that. And I, I think, look, I'm, I married into an Asian family. So I've seen, and I'm, I'm a white dude for people who, you know, can't see me, which is pretty much everybody. So uh, this for me is all new. And must be exciting. It is. It is exciting because I see how much stronger these cultural cues are yes. for my wife's family and, and now my extended family. So it's, it's really something else. I mean, yeah. coming from a bunch of white people in Michigan to a bunch of Taiwanese people in California, it is quite different. Uh, you know, my wife's American. She grew up here, but her parents immigrated from Taiwan and, and before that, China. So it's very, very different what's expected of young people, of elders, the type of relationship. I mean, my, my friends, they'll joke with me and go, oh, man, I've got to go. I can't come over and hang out. I got to go to the in-laws or whatever. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I have fun, whatever. And they're like, oh, it's not going to be fun. I can't believe it. I got to do this. They, that when they hear that I go to my in-laws house four times a week or three times a week, they're just like, oh, my God, I'm not going to complain anymore. But it's there's nothing wrong with it. For me, it's fun. I'm treated well. You know, they don't grill me. It's really, really interesting and fun. But most of my friends recoil in horror when they hear that I go to my in-law's house, you know, three times a week for well, dinner and, and, and gatherings. They're just, they can't believe it. There's a there's a, a little blessing hiding there because when I'm doing relationship coaching with people, which is quite often, um, one of the things I tell them is before you get married, make sure you can spend two or three days in a hotel room with your partner's parents. Because if you can't, you're looking at your future because you've met the person you're about to marry's programmers. There's an old saying, why is it that mom and dad can push your buttons so easily? Because they put them there. They installed them, yeah. right? So the fact that you can spend time like that with her family, I'd say as a therapist, looks good for your future in that relationship. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, that that to me makes perfect sense. Because I'll tell you, um, my friends who complain about their in-laws and occasionally their significant other, I already see the writing on the wall. I, can, I don't tell them this, but I do try to get my friends out of the habit of talking negatively. I think there's, and I don't know if this is media or what, Paul, but there's this whole thing where it's like, ah, the old ball and chain, the wife, you know, da-da-da, oh, she's so dumb, but does all this stuff. I don't talk like that because you know, you start to believe the things you say to other people and say to yourself. And I think that that can cause a big problem because eventually you start to believe it and whether or not they believe it, I think it's super unhealthy for their relationship. Totally. You know, there's a rule, it's called the five to one rule for a healthy relationship. Researchers found that there needs to be five positive comments for every one negative comment in a relationship. In other words, if you are talking to your wife, let's say I put a voice recorder in your house or on each of you, 
the research shows that in, in healthy relationships, long-lasting healthy relationships, there's generally about five positive comments transferred between partners to one negative. But most of the people that I coach that are having relationship problems have that ratio inverted. Oh, they, yeah. They are five negatives and lucky if there's one positive. And, you know, most people, if they're lucky, make it seven years, you know, the seven year mark in the relationships where the kind of the rubber hits the road for a lot of people. And if you, if you can make it past seven years and stay in love with each other, and I don't mean a puppy love, but I mean a respectful, mature love and a, and a, and a real commitment to partnership and working through the natural challenges of life, you're probably going to be okay. But by most people, by the time most people get to seven years, if they haven't learned decent relationship skills, it's either Groundhog Day for the rest of their life, or they have to start doing some legitimate work. So just since we're talking about it, I'll share. There's basically four things you can do when a relationship starts to break down. One, work on yourself. In other words, take responsibility for your 50% of the relationship and know that that's what you're responsible for managing. Two, work on the relationship, which means see the relationship as something beyond yourself as an individual something that lives and breathes through the interactions of the two of you. So where can you honor and worship the relationship and make sacrifices for each other that makes the relationship work better? Three, do nothing and know that yesterday equals tomorrow, Groundhog Day. Four, get out of the relationship. There is a fifth, which is work on yourself and the relationship. But I tell people, it's, this is not like going to university and trying to cram for two master's degrees at once. This is not an intellectual process. And working on yourself and relationship usually doesn't work because most of the people are having prob problems in relationships because they haven't figured themselves out. And they find out that the things that were attractive to them when they got married or developed their partnership, they've grown out of or aren't interesting to them anymore. So they're actually a different person. So I tell people, you really need to spend time exploring yourself to figure out who you are now, because you may find out that you're just not compatible to that person anymore. And if you don't figure that out and you try to work on the relationship, the part of you that may be aware that you're not compatible with that person anymore is not really going to participate. So it's usually not very productive to be kind of an academic, aggressive approach to relationship uh, therapy that way. Yeah, I mean, this this all makes sense as a guy who's been married for a few years, but been in a relationship with my wife for, yeah, seven years. I mean, I see a lot of our friends that we thought, man, they have such a good relationship. And now it's, uh, like you said, the rubber's starting to meet the road and the honeymoon phase is long long gone. They have kids or or things have starting to, reality's starting to set in. Adulting is starting to get harder. And it, it takes its toll on people. I always tell people who are, I got married late. You know, I got married when I was 35, 36. Yeah. But I was dating my wife for several years before that. But when I was in my 20s, I had all those do-overs. So whenever I meet people in their 20s and they're like 27 and they want to get married, I'm just like, oh man, you're either a fast learner or this is a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 both of those could be very very true 
you know, it, taking everything we've been discussing so far, are you familiar with the book Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz? MD? Oh, yeah, I read that so long ago. Man, I couldn't tell you what's in there now, of course, but... Well, yeah. well you know, he makes a point in there, and it's very, it's very appropriate for what we're discussing, so I wanted to bring it up because I think it gives us a chance to maybe have a, a little dialogue on something quite important that's relevant to what we've been discussing. In, in his book, he says, success is getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you get. And what he's pointing out and what I've seen many times, you know, I know many famous athletes and movie stars and people that I've worked with that really became very successful, but did not at all enjoy what it came with from, you know, the constant pressure, social expectations, uh, invasions of their personal life, you know, dot, dot, dot. For, for example, you look at people that have won the lotto and they, they talk about how their family just completely changed and there were money grubbing all the time and leveraging them. And so they, they had the success, but they didn't have the happiness. And those that are successful and happy are really truly ready for everything that success brought to them and they accept it. Uh, a good example is I was watching a very good documentary on Christina Aguilera, and she talks about how all the way back when she was three years old, she just knew that she was here to be a star, to be on stage, and she would, was willing to do anything she had to do, no matter how hard she had to work. She had this compass bearing and would not let anything get in her way, and she just work at it and now she's got all the money all the success i think she's worth 180 million dollars now um you, you know she has all that stardom but when you talk to when you hear her in interviews she loves the fan she she doesn't seem to be perturbed at all in other words she really has happiness and success together so when when you consider everything we've talked about about whether or not you love your job or whether you should love your job What's your feelings about the issue of people working their ass off to become successful, but finding out that they're very, very unhappy? Oh, man, this is a whole can of worms, right? A lot of people that I know that are the most driven people are some of the most miserable people. And I, I'm not immune to this either. I look at my family and friends back in Michigan who graduated from high school, married their high school sweetheart, got a job as a teacher, and they're very happy. I look at them and I'm jealous. And the reason is because they figured out how to be happy with what they what they got, if that makes sense, right? Kind of right, to what yeah. you said. Yeah. And whereas I'm always like, the show has to be bigger. I have to get bigger and better guests. I have to have bigger and better production. I've got a better distribution. I've got to have this and that. And it's not material things, right? I, I've I'm luckily I'm not into the material stuff because that's a trap as well. But yes. I'm I'm in a different trap of my own making. But when I look at a lot of my friends who are like marketers online and stuff like that, they are absolutely miserable. They're selling something they couldn't possibly believe in because it's garbage. They are victimizing other people to join their, you know, masterminds or whatever, like we talked about earlier. They nothing is ever enough. And of course, if when you get to know them decently well, they have serious problems. You know, they yeah. have bad childhoods or they have major intimacy issues because nobody can get close to them because they they never want to open up. 
and people think, oh, it's look at the so-and-so. They're so vulnerable on their show and they talk about all this stuff. It's a show. It's not, and I don't mean a podcast or a TV show. Their, their whole existence is so fake that I don't even think they know what's real anymore. I don't think even they know themselves. I think everything about them is an elaborately constructed persona to keep them away from pain. Well, there you go. That you, you hit the nail on the head. Step number one when you're in a relationship problem, work on yourself. Because like you said, most people don't know themselves. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, you know, what, what came to my mind as you were talking there is I remember very clearly Joe Rogan's not, not too long ago interview with Elon Musk. And, and Joe Rogan said, you know, what's it like to be Elon Musk? And, you know, he got a, a very serious look on his face and he shook his head. He goes, you wouldn't like it. It's not easy. My mind is constantly coming up with new ideas and things to do, and I have a lot to do every day. And so, you know, I love the fact that he was blatantly honest. And, and you know, people look at a guy like that. He's rich. He's successful. They think he's got the world made. But, but you could clearly see he was being honest that to live inside of a mind with that kind of power and, and, and a call it a heart with that much willingness to go for it and do stuff can be torturous. Definitely. And I think, you know, he said something like, I don't think you'd necessarily want to be me. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's very telling, especially for all these people who think, oh, but you're like the real life Tony Stark. It's so amazing. Everybody loves you. You're a hero. Yeah. But we're, we're in love with the image of what he represents. Nobody wants to be him. People that work with him, I know a lot of people that work with him, or a few, I should say, they're not necessarily thinking this is the greatest guy ever. They love his ideas. They believe in his mission, but he's not an easy person to be around. He's clearly not a person that's easy to be in a relationship with. You know, we see yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very much the Steve Jobs story in yes. some sense, you know? And, you know, are you familiar with Joseph Campbell? Uh, Yeah. Well, you know, Joseph Campbell was addressing these issues, which he often did. I've studied his work quite extensively, but he made a very key point that's relevant to our discussion here. He said most people spend their life in a career that they think they wanted only to get to the top of the ladder and realize it's leaning against the wrong wall. (laughs) And, you know, I think that's really why as a, as a, a therapist and a, holistic lifestyle coach and, and, uh, you know, someone that is a conditioning coach for world-class athletes, I mix all these skills together because they're all needed. I find that if we really pursue getting to the top of the metaphorical ladder or pyramid, but we're not aware of when we're actually losing our connection to ourself, our connection to the people that we love in our relationships, that we actually can end up, and I've seen this happen many times. I've got very wealthy clients who spend tons of money because their wife has chronically got these problems. They've got health problems or cancer or, uh, you know, clogged arteries or some kind of chronic health problem. Their kids are often on psycho, uh, psychological management drugs for ADD, ADHD, or anger outbursts. And so what you see is that there's, their whole life became the pursuit of power, money, uh, maybe fame. But in that, they so badly lost connection to what really gives meaning. I mean, if I said to you, okay, Jordan, I'm going to give you everything you want. I'll give you any guest you want and as much money as you want. But your relationship with your wife is going to get fucked up and your kid's going to grow up to miss her daddy 
and be out of balance because she didn't have a good connection to her father. Would you really climb that ladder? Of course not. Of course not. But yet that's the choice that a lot of people make unconsciously because it's not framed as such. It's framed as if you work really hard and you sacrifice, you can have fame and then you'll finally feel complete. I mean, they may, they probably don't say that last part, but you know that's implied. You'll finally feel complete, loved, important, whatever it is. And then they go, and then I'll do all this other stuff. You know, I'll have a family. And it, it's like, no, 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 that's not how life works out. What happens is you end up marrying somebody and they want kids. So you have kids. And then the rest of it is it's all downhill from there for a lot of these influencer thought leader type people because it's their lifestyle is not compatible. They haven't thought about what they really want. They don't want to admit that their whole life is geared around being a celebrity because that right. seems really shallow. So they lie to themselves and they lie to everyone else. And it's, you know, and if we sort of look at this from a different perspective, we've got an entire religion called Christianity that says, if you take Jesus as your savior, then you'll get to go to heaven, but you got to follow all these rules or you're going to burn in hell. Mm -hmm. So what happens is they've got an even slicker business plan with uh, about a 1.2 billion people subscribed where you don't get any payback until you die. Right. So there's that, that's even better than multi-level marketing. I mean, the, only, <laughs> yeah. the only thing that, that is right up there with that is AA. And I'm not against AA, but uh, you know the Christian Bible is the number one most read book in the world, number one best-selling book in the world. And number two is the AA manual. And it is written in Christian language by a Christian. And, and this isn't a bash on Christianity. I'm just saying, we we have a tendency to fall for a carrot that seems to be out of reach quite often. Total, oh, totally agree with that. And I, I think you're right. Religion is the ultimate because if you look at when the time frame in which these religions evolved, I mean, life was horrible for the vast majority of people. So wouldn't it be great if we could convince people that their reward was in their afterlife? And on top of that, the way to get that reward was to be subservient to all these control systems that just so happen to be outlined really neatly by the church that you're in right now. And they're still live and well today. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just as alive and just as well. I mean, look at ISIS. Yeah. I was just watching a documentary yesterday about a guy whose wife kidnapped his kids and took them to freaking Syria. She died in an airstrike. Now the kids are being hidden by these refugees. These are people that live in the most disgusting conditions humanity has to offer. And they're still sitting there going, well, at least we don't live in America. It's like, are you kidding me? They say it with like, <laughs> and they say it with like a perfect, you know, British accent or something like that. Yeah. At least we don't live in the place of infidels. And I'm like, there's a part of you that wants to go home and take a shower and not live in this tent wearing this crazy get up, you know, these are men and women, half of them grew up in like the Bronx and Queens and London, you know, they don't, this is, it's just ridiculous. And they're completely brainwashed. And if you think about it, what, this is the same type of thinking that probably the majority of the population had under, um, theocratic regimes in years past. Yeah, it is actually, if you read Richard Wilhelm's edition of the Tao Te Ching, in the back, he gives quite a comprehensive expose on how the emperors used to go out, find the leading spiritual teachers, have them come teach the the uh, hired wise people, lawyers and whatever we would call them in, in those times. And they would use those teachings specifically to manipulate their people into doing exactly what they wanted them to do, but 
somehow make them think that it was for the Tao or mm-hmm. for God. And so the reason I'm bringing it up is because that's one of the books that gives a very good expose of how uh, kings, queens, emperors, empresses have been using religion to brainwash people into doing whatever they wanted them to do, not realizing that it was uh, a government religion in, in bed together, which nothing's any different today, unfortunately. Agree with you 100%. This has been a pleasure of a conversation. Yes, I, I would love it if you could share where people can find out more about your podcast. Your your uh, your articles are on uh, jordanharbinger.com, and there's lots there. I know that for sure. Is there any other places you want to send people? Sure. I mean, really, jordanharbinger.com or the Jordan Harbinger Show, wherever you get podcasts. It's one of the most popular interview podcasts in the world, so uh, hopefully we're doing something right. Hopefully that's what that means. And. Whoa. It's a popular enough one. I wanted to talk to you, so thank you. That's right. Thank you very much. And and I I teach networking and relationship development. I teach it to uh, sales teams, intelligence agencies, and things like that. But I, I assembled a free course for civilians uh, at jordanharbinger.com slash course if people are interested in that. It's, it's actually free. It's not like enter your credit card free. It's just free. Well, I love it. And uh, let's see if we can do this again sometime if you're up for it. I have lots of other questions I'd like to ask you and dialogue on and uh, have some fun together. So uh, if you're up for it, whenever it works out, let's do another round. I'm up for it, man. Definitely. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care. All right. Thanks for sharing. You got it. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Jordan Harbinger. You can find Jordan online at jordanharbinger.com or follow him on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at Jordan Harbinger. Jordan invites Paul's listeners to take advantage of his free six-minute networking course that will nudge you out of your comfort zone and prime you for the growth to succeed in social situations, both personal and professional. Go to jordanharbinger.com forward slash course to register. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.